nature, because in their words, Scripture is clear that both men and women are made in the image of God, but the same Bible is also clear, men are made to be leaders and women are made to be followers. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God wants? Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore what the Bible says about women. We're going to talk about what it says, what it doesn't say, and we're going to decide for ourselves. Is the Bible anti-woman? Now, most of my atheist friends, I had some friends over to play board games uh, a few weeks ago, and he works at a bookshop, and he was talking about people would come in and looked at some religious books, and he, he's like, why are they even buying? Why is this woman buying a Bible? The Bible hates her. The Bible's anti-her. Um, the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. seems to think that the Bible is anti-woman, or so it appears by their statement. But does the Bible actually say that? Or are we, as modern, progressive Westerners, are we trying to fight what God has ordained? Or perhaps are people with an anti-woman bias reading something into the text that isn't there? We're going to find out over the next few weeks. And so I'm always excited when we kick off a new series, so I hope you'll stick with us for the next few weeks as we talk about it together. And we know that sometimes people read their bias into the Bible. We know that happens. Sometimes well-meaning people read a cultural bias that they have into the Bible. Just look at Southern theologians during the Civil War. These were men of God with insightful understanding of the Bible who would ultimately twist passages into pretzels in order to affirm slavery in the South. Why? Because it was foundational to the economy of their society and even more so foundational to money flowing into their churches. In other words, it's often very hard for us to look past our biases, to see our own biases, and as a result... Our biases affect how we think and process more than we would like to think and more than we would like even imagine. The more our identity or way of life depends on an unspoken bias, the harder it is for us to admit that it's there, to even see it, and especially to dismiss it. Now, this is a buzzword. If you're on TikTok at all, you hear this buzzword all the time. People talk about microaggressions. Anybody, you hear people say this, like, those are microaggression. How dare they, you know? Um, most, of the time, most of the time, I find people just are very macroaggression to me. They're just over the top, but sometimes there's microaggressions. And now, it's easy to call out people when we notice their microaggressions. Many times a microaggression is when you sense that someone has a bias against you. They're not saying it, but you sense it. We call that a microaggression. And it's easy to call those people out. It's easy to notice when someone has a bias against you. What is challenging is to recognize and acknowledge these biases and these behaviors in ourselves. Let me just say that again. It's very easy to pick up on the unstated biases in other people. You don't have to hang around people very long to be like, mm, they got some biases about this. They got some biases about this. They've got some biases about that. But it's so hard to recognize it or notice it in ourselves. There's unstated intrinsic biases in you and in me, and other people can spot them, but it's really hard for us to see them. So before we get started, we're going to talk for a few minutes about biases, and the first thing I want us to do is just mentally admit you have some biases, probably some biases you don't even realize you have. Just mentally admit that to yourself. Second of all, I want you to acknowledge that American society has biases that we pick up and we don't even notice because it's the water we swim in. 
You know, like a fish, the old joke is, doesn't know that they're wet. You know, they're like, what's water? It's just all around them. There are biases because you're in an American society that you've picked up without realizing. Just think about the role of women in America. If we're going to unpack any biases we might be bringing to the text, we need to understand our history as a people and our history as a culture because we bring that baggage with us when we read the Bible. We don't just divorce all that and we come to the Bible. Even when we try really hard to come to the Bible, we have ways of thinking about things and thinking about words because of the culture we live in. So let's think about American culture and its relationship with women. Less than 200 years ago, women weren't allowed to go to college. That's crazy. Less than 200 years ago. It was 1836 when Wesleyan became the first women's college in the world. Over the next several decades, other women's colleges opened up, including Bryn Mawr College, just five minutes down the road here. A hundred years ago, women couldn't vote. That blows my mind. A hundred years ago isn't that long. Darby's grandmother's in her 90s. She was 10 years old when women, or like less than 10 years older than her when women got the right to vote. Passed by Congress in June 4th, 1919, ratified in 1920. It was the 19th Amendment, granted women to vote. They actually fought for it for over 50 years. It was a lengthy, lengthy and difficult struggle. Um, lots of agitation and protest until they got the right. Less than 100 years ago, women couldn't leave a marriage. They couldn't get a divorce. The man could divorce the wife, but the wife couldn't divorce the husband. In 1937, the Matrimonial Causes Act allowed women to divorce men on the same terms as men for the first time. Today, like still right now today, a woman with the same education, same experience and background in the same position as a man will on average make 80% of what the man does. Now, I don't know anyone who would deny a woman the right to go to college or the right to vote or the right to leave an abusive husband or the right to earn an honest wage. But if you look back at history at each of these moments, one of the fiercest obstacles to each of these women's rights movements were churches and Christians who saw these actions as allowing women to have unbiblical freedom. And in their minds, they thought it would destabilize American families. Now, right now, we're like, oh, these are good things. Like, why would the church ever fight that? But if you go back and look at American history, the church, oh, man, against women voting, they were fiercely against that. There were churches having protests. There were pastors standing up and preaching against it. Part of the American Christian bias is restricting women. That's not a good part of our American Christian history, but it's a part. And that's not just my opinion. That's just history. You can go and read about it. History proves it. The American church has had a bias against restricting women. Whether or not you see it, if you've been a part of American Christianity at all, you probably have some biases because the pastor who pastored you was pastored by people who didn't want women to work outside of the home, who didn't want her to earn the same salary so she wouldn't be tempted to work outside of the home, and the pastor who pastored him didn't want women to be able to, to divorce, and the pastor who pastored him didn't want women to vote, and the pastor who pastored him didn't want women to go to college. And so most biases are transmitted unintentionally over time. And so before we even get to the first text in this series, we have to acknowledge, before we even get to the root of this question about what God has ordained and his role for men and women, before that, I just want us to acknowledge that we probably have some biases, probably some personal biases, probably some cultural biases, probably some biases that even came from people in the church. The people who taught us and helped us form opinions about God and the Bible probably had biases too, 
some that they were unaware of, and those biases probably affect how we read the Bible and especially how we think about this issue. Now, I don't know any Christian today who would say a woman shouldn't go to college or be allowed to vote or be allowed to divorce an abusive husband or earn a livable wage. Maybe before I moved up here, I lived in Tennessee. Maybe somewhere in the backwoods of Tennessee, there's some pastor standing up this morning saying those things. But I don't know of any. Like, I can't think of anyone who would say that. No one would say that. But if we go back 100 years, most Christians were saying that or something like that because of biases. Now, Stay with my logic here. If Christians a hundred years ago had biases that today we can look at and say, wow, that's ridiculous. Isn't it possible, isn't it even likely that we have some biases today that Christians a hundred years from now will look at and think, boy, they were pretty ridiculous back then. So, all that to be said, let's look at this topic. Let's look at these texts with a little bit of humility. Let's go into it with an open mind. You might already have some thoughts about what the Bible says about the role of women in the Bible. I'm asking you to set that aside, and that's going to be hard. As much as you can, set that aside, and let's read the text in the series with fresh eyes. Examine what it says together. Every sermon series I write, I start with this question. What if I'm wrong? Because I never want to go into a series thinking... Man, I know all the answers. I'm going to find some Bible verses to support what I already think, and we're good to go. I never want to assume that I already think the right thing about the topic or the passage, that I have nothing left to learn, that I have nowhere that needs to change. I think when we approach the text that way, already having our minds made up, we miss what God wants to say to us because we're not open to hear something new or different. Okay. That was a long introduction. Everybody good? You still with me? Nobody's got up and stormed out yet, so that's a good sign. There are two major views on what the Bible says about women. They are the complementarian view. Complementarianism is a theological view in Christianity. Very similar ideas in Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, and Islam, that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities, both in marriage, family, and religious leadership. The different roles are men are leaders and women are followers men are providers women are support staff and under this idea god orders things by gender if he made you a woman he's got a place for you if he made you a man he's got a place for you and it's in leadership egalitarian the other view is the egalitarian view relating to or believing in the principle that people regardless of gender are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities in this view God gives both male and female leaders, both men and women can be followers or leaders, and God ordains things by personality. He's made some of you a leader by your personality. Some of you tend to be more followers because of your personality, not because of your gender. So which is the right answer? Which one does the Bible teach? Which one has been influenced by a conservative moment in America's past? Or which one has been influenced by a progressive moment in America's present? Which one does God want? That's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. We're going to explore the Bible together. We're, I'm going to present the case for both sides. I'm going to talk to you about where I am and where I have been. Okay, everybody good. You understand my thesis? You understand where we're going in this theory, in this series? Let's jump in. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the first key point. The image of God is not masculine. The image of God is unity in diversity. Women is not, woman is not made in man's image, and man is made in God's image. They are both made in the image of God. The image of God is 
male and female. The mission to subdue the world and bring order and beauty is given to both man and woman. They are split pieces of humanity. Yahweh is a trinity, a unified community of diversity united by love. Humanity is male and female united by love and a shared mission to accomplish God's objectives on earth as God's representatives. It is curious that God, Father, Son, and Spirit created humanity, which is both male and female. Unity in diversity. Let's continue. Genesis chapter 2. This is going to be the bulk of our text in verses 15 through 18. The Lord God, that's Yahweh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And Yahweh commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Then Yahweh said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the word I want to focus on is the word translated helper. If you're reading in the King James, it's help meet. It's the Hebrew word Eitzer. Eitzer, everybody, you want to say that with me? Learn some Hebrew. Eitzer. Eitzer, yeah. Now, most translation teams translating Hebrew into English is made up of men. That's just a reality. There's not a lot of women signing up to become Hebrew scholars, even though there's been increasingly more in the last 10 or 15 years. And men, like all humans, have some biases. And so they've chosen the word helper. What does that make you think of when you read the word helper? God's like, I'm going to make a helper. Surprise, it's woman. What does helper make you think of? Like a maid. Like a maid, yeah. What else? You hear the word helper. There could be positive things. Could be negative. Like an assistant coach. Yes, Serene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we're all thinking along the same lines. When I hear helper, that's what I think of. Here's the dictionary definition of a helper. A person who helps someone else, or in other words, someone who exists to help someone else accomplish their goals. Now, what does this make it sound like? It sounds like God gave man a mission, and the woman helps him fulfill his dreams, accomplish his important missions. It seems to regulate the woman to a support role, to an assistant coach role. But is that a good translation? Here's some other times the word Eitzer is used in the Old Testament. And let's just see if this is a good translation, okay? This is other times the word Eitzer is used. Exodus 18.4, and he said, My father's God was my Eitzer. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 33.7, And this he said about Judah, Hear, Lord, the cry of Judah. Bring him to his people. With his own hands he defends his cause. Oh, be his Eitzer against his foes. There is no one like the God of Jeseron who runs across the heavens to answer you and runs on the clouds in his majesty. Blessed are you, Israel. This is verse 29. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is your shield and your answer and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before him. You will tread on their heights. Um, in Psalms, we wait and hope on the Lord. He is our answer and our shield. Again, in Psalms, all you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is your answer and your shield. Verse 8 in Psalms, our Eitzer is the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Blessed are those whose Eitzer is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. That's right, every other time Eitzer is used in the Bible is for God. And I know you're like, that's a lot of verses, we're sick of you reading all those verses. I'm sorry, but I want to show you something. Eitzer isn't, it doesn't come up later when that king's like, hey Eitzer, go and fetch that newspaper for me. That's not how it's used. 
It's used every time for God coming in and rescuing. It isn't used in the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament for some servant picking up the worst job so someone else can stand in the spotlight. Eitzer usually refers to God rushing in to rescue. See, an Eitzer isn't the low-line cook in an elite chef's restaurant. An Eitzer is the celebrity chef who comes in to help the failing, struggling restaurant by helping the owner rework the menu in the kitchen. This title, Eitzer, is most often used to describe Yahweh and most often in military contexts. Um, remember the movie about the 1960s racism in the Deep South called The Help? Anybody remember that movie? Yeah. It's a, it's a serious movie, but it's a great movie. The term the help in our society is not a positive term. It's a put down. It's a slur. It's not something we would use to describe God, and it's not the word that the Bible uses to describe women. God did not make the help he made an Eitzer. So some scholars now are suggesting a better translation of Eitzer. A better translation would be a rescuing ally or a delivering ally. You go back, plug it into those verses about Yahweh, delivering ally, rescuing ally fits, plug it back into Genesis chapter 2, and all of a sudden you read about the creation of woman completely different. No longer is she the assistant coach. All of a sudden, she's someone to stand alongside the man because he can't do the mission without her. Women are not men's helper. They are men's rescuing allies. We cannot do the mission God has for humanity without women. They are not support staff for the big guns. Um, when Darby and I were engaged, uh, my wife's at the animal hospital with our, with our dog this morning because... Chaos follows us everywhere we go. Um, but when we were engaged, we sat down for marriage counseling with a pastor, and he said, hey, you're going to be a pastor's wife to Darby. And he goes, my wife is the best pastor's wife because she's seen and not heard. Everything she does is to support me and make me look good in the church. And I watched Darby's, like, fist clench underneath the desk, and I was like, She's about to punch this guy. I'm like, we're never going to be able to come back to here. But she held it in, you know, and we got out to the parking lot. And she said, if you believe that, we should break up right now. And I said, I don't believe that. Please stay with me. Please marry me. And she did. But in that man's mind, the role of a pastor wife was to support him because he was the big gun with the important mission. And her job was to make him look good, help him achieve the big role that intact that God had given him. He was the essential personnel. She was support staff. Eitzer doesn't leave us room to think that way. The mission God gave humanity to be his representatives to the world, to carry out his mission of spreading beauty and order, is dead in the water without women. They don't exist to make the men look good. They exist to accomplish the mission of God just like men. Uh, this summer, Christopher Nolan, I love Christopher Nolan movies, his new movie Oppenheimer came out, and in it, it features real-life chemist um, Lily Hornig. Lily Hornig got her undergraduate degree right here at Bryn Mawr College, right down the road. And after that, she went on and got a master's degree in chemistry from Harvard. Now, her husband, Don, got a job working on the atomic bomb. And so here's a quote from an interview from her. Uh, she said, my husband, Don, of course, went straight to work. I went to the personnel office on the base. And the first question they had for me was, how fast can you type? And she said, deadpan, I don't type. But she said, I'm a world-class chemist. And if you need some chemistry done, I can do that. 
she became the first woman to work on plutonium and became one of the first people to test the chemical limits of plutonium in the world, an essential ingredient for the atomic bomb. Bias saw a Harvard-educated chemist as a typist rather than an essential scientist to create the atomic bomb. Bias in the church sees women as support staff for men while they do the important work. Isn't it possible? I'm not saying that this is where the series will lead, but isn't it possible at least that bias means that we sometimes see women that God called to be pastors or leaders as simply nursery workers and event planners? We say, how fast do you type when actually they have the training to be a world-class chemist? See, I think God doesn't look down and see men on mission and women supporting them. God sees men trying to accomplish the mission without their delivering ally that he provided to shoulder the load and work alongside them, not as support staff, but as equals. Notice the Genesis passage. What God says is, the man can't do it on his own. We didn't need more men in order to accomplish the mission. We needed someone different than man. Because the woman was different than man, she was able to be a deliverer to him. Think about the women in your life. Your moms, your sisters, your spouses, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors. These aren't just women. These are rescuing allies. These are delivering allies sent by God. Every woman you meet reflects the image of God. We say it over and over again here at Horizon. The goal of the Christian life is for everyone, male and female, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? I want to end with this quote from Carlos Rodriguez. Jesus protected women. Jesus empowered women. Jesus honored women publicly. Jesus released the voice of women. He confided confided in women, was funded by women, celebrated women, respected women, and he spoke of women as examples to follow. Now it's our turn. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word continues to challenge me. Year after year, as I read the same passages over and over again, I begin to see new things. You begin to reveal new things, and God, forgive me for sometimes being so short-sighted God, let me see my sisters in the faith with the same eyes as you see them as answering, delivering allies, rescuing allies to mankind and humanity. God, thank you for the the women that you put in my life who love you and are such examples to me, who challenge me to love you more and to become more like you. I pray all these things.